Um, this morning we are in week eight. We're going through a series called One. If this is your first time here, um, we're doing a series called One, going through the book of Ephesians. It's actually a letter that Paul wrote to a church a lot like us. It was in a city um, of Ephesus, and so that's why they called them Ephesians, because we're in Albemarle, and they call us Albemarleans. They don't really, and we're glad that they don't, because that sounded horrible coming out of my mouth. Um, and so we've kind of been taking a little bit each week and walking through and kind of seeing, you know, like, what, what is he saying to them? How does that apply to us? And this morning, we are done with theory. How many of you ever took a class in college, and the professor was talking the whole time, and you're just listening to him going, this will not work in real life? You ever had a class like that? It's called calculus. <laughs> right? My, my memory of calculus was I had a teacher, and she, all I remember about calculus, this is terrible, is she had... I don't know what you call it, but the arm thing right here. And, like, she would turn around and start writing on the board. And that's all we saw was, like, blah, 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 back and forth. That's terrible. I know. I know it's terrible. And she's never going to hear this, we hope. And if she, if she does, she's not grading me anymore. So I'm good. I'm home free. Um, but calculus was one of those, right? Calculus is, like, all theory. I just realized that. Anybody that comes in next week with long sleeve shirts, I just made you feel so bad. I'm so sorry. That's not what that's not what I meant at all. All I was trying to say was calculus was one of those classes for me where the whole time she's talking, I knew I had to make a good grade. So I knew I kind of had to study, kind of had to know enough to pass. But I just knew there was no way I was ever going to get on a plane, go to New York City, and some dude put a gun in my back and say, tell me how calculus works or I'm going to kill you. It's never going to work in real life. I have no, no concept. And so it, it was a wasted class for me. And, and here's the deal. The last three chapters, the first three chapters in Ephesians, we've talked theory. We've talked about who we are in Christ. That's a phrase we hear a lot, in Christ. We, we hear like, hey, um, you've been selected by the Father. You've been set free by the Son. You've been sealed by the Spirit. And that's one of those statements that y'all just go, man, Paul's amazing. Like, all those start with S. And I can remember it. But if we really stop to think about it, we go, what does that really look like in, in real life? And so today, chapter 4, Paul, like, makes this drastic shift. And from today until the end of this series, you're either going to love it or you're really going to hate it. Because he gets really, really practical, okay? It's not theory anymore. He's going to start showing us how this stuff that we have learned works out in real life. He starts to put some walk with the talk. Here's what we can't forget. That our walk is 100% connected to the talk. What we do is connected to who we are, okay? So all the things that we've learned to this point is in the who we are category, and now we're going to be in the what we do category. But all of this is connected to here, okay? Okay, that was great. It's like calculus. You're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. You're just up there and you're jiggling. Whatever's going on. Here we go. Here, let me sum it up like this. You don't have to remember this. It's in the notes. You can get online. The difference between I have to and I get to is knowing what I'm called to. Okay? That's not the big idea. Here's the big idea today. You can fill it in the top of your sheet. The big idea says this. The difference between a choice and a chore is ownership. The difference between a choice and a chore is ownership. This is critical. Okay? 
This is like the foundation for the next three chapters in this book. And it's really, really important because we are in the Bible Belt, right? Like we say a lot, the Bible Belt is squarely around the devil's waist, okay? A lot of people in church, not a lot of stuff being lived out. Because we've got this thing in our head like it's all this to-do list. We have to do these things. And that's not it at all. The difference between a, a chore and a choice is ownership. Let's just point one. I'm not making you fill out any blanks today because I just want you to listen, okay? Here's the first point. I get to versus I have to. And this is one of those points that you, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you don't love Jesus, but I'm just letting you know right now we've got a lot of people here today. It's possible that you're sitting here today, and the only reason you're here is because somebody promised you a juicy steak after church. You don't love church. You don't love Jesus. You don't even really like the person that you came with. They're just going to buy you a steak, and so you're here. And you're sitting here thinking, there's no way I'm going to get anything out of this because this is the part of the service where the man stands up with a microphone. He's got a Bible. He's going to do this a lot. He's going to use a lot of words. He's going to say principles that don't relate to me because I don't even love Jesus. But this one, you'll understand. There's a difference between I have to and I get to. And here's how you'll know the difference. If you've ever bought a car, you know this principle's true. When I was a teenager, I loved sunny Saturday afternoons. Except when I walked outside and saw that my dad had gotten out a bucket and a hose and some rags. Because that meant I was going to wash his cars. There was no better way to ruin a perfectly sunny Saturday afternoon than the bucket, the hose, the rags, and my dad's cars. But when I bought my first car, a 1984 two-door Honda hatchback, it wasn't just a hatchback. It had those little slats that went on the back window. I don't even know why they were there. I think they were there to cut your hand when you washed them. But they were cool, right? It's all about the 80s. When I bought that car, I loved sunny, sunny Saturday afternoons. Why is that? Because it wasn't raining. I could go outside and I could wash my car. There's a difference between a choice and a chore. And the difference is, very simply, ownership. Now, admittedly, the longer you own something, the less you care about washing it. We own a house. If you come and talk to my wife, ask Wendy, so... You got any things that you'd like to see happen at the house? <laughs> Boy, does she, right? But when we first got our house, like when you first buy something, have you noticed when you first get it, I mean, you will spend hours and hours. Before we ever moved here and we bought that house, I spent hours in there painting the house, getting it ready. I didn't go knock on my neighbor's door and say, hey, guess what? I'm moving to the neighborhood, and I just, I just painted my house. I've just got a couple hours to kill. Can I paint yours? I mean, they would have thought I was the best neighbor ever, right? But I didn't do that because I don't own their house. When you first own something, you're, you'll pour yourself all in it because... You own it. I can't overstate that enough. Sunny Saturdays for me, when I owned my car, it made me stop cringing at obligation. It made me jump at opportunity. 
Now, this just sounds like a life lesson, right? Life coaching. You're kind of sitting here. Now, if you're really religious, you're like, where's Jesus in all this, right? Where's Jesus in this? It's in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. This is what Paul writes. As a prisoner for the Lord then, and he's talking about himself. He's not saying, hey, you're a prisoner of the Lord. I mean, maybe we are, maybe we aren't. But he's talking about himself. He's under house arrest, okay? The dude's in prison. Maybe it's a cushy prison. I don't know, but he's not free to come and go. He's in prison. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So this is kind of how he starts the whole practical three chapters of the letter. I urge you to live a life worthy of what you have received. The word received means, wait for it, you've received it. You're expecting something more spiritual. It means that if you are in Christ, you're not renting salvation. You own it. We're not renting unity, like rent a church, you know. Hey, it really feels full and unified today. Why is that? Well, we call this company. You pay them so much money, they send in really happy people. Now, we don't rent unity. We own unity. Paul says, you've received this. I didn't know this until I was studying for this passage, but you'll never find anywhere in the Bible that tells you to build unity. Blew my mind. I've been in church all my life, literally born on the pew. Not literally, but close. Nowhere in the Bible are we commanded to create unity. We're called to protect it, to guard it, to maintain it, to own it. The difference between a choice and a chore is ownership. Paul just spent three chapters explaining that the one thing that matters most to God is making one body. And here, Paul explains that God gives us that gift. It's ours. Everything that follows from that verse forward is a choice or a chore to us. I mean, he's going to get... I know it's going to be great for our church because we have nothing but fantastic marriages in our church, right? None of you ever fight. None of you fought on the way here at all. Every husband is dressed exactly how their wife had hoped that they would dress today. You did not do what I do and just reach in and pick off the top of the pile, whatever shirt's there, and not even bother to iron it. Who irons anyway, right? But in the next couple chapters, guess what Paul's going to do? He's going to talk pretty intensely about marriage. None of the kids, all the kids are down in Kid City, right? So it's good. None of us dads have ever pushed our kids so far to the limit that our kids are like, I don't know, I think I kind of hate you, right? Because we're great dads. We're perfect dads. We say everything just right. We're never mad. We never raise our voice. We never go into dad bully mode, (laughs) right? Because I told you to. And now did I tell you to? I'm going to make you. I'm going to hold your hands and make you cut that. We never do that, right? But he's going to actually say somewhere in here, hey, fathers, don't exasperate your children. I'm telling you, you're going to love it or you're going to hate it, but he's going to get real. The rubber's going to hit the road in the next three chapters. And everything that we read in your head, I just, I'm warning you, okay, in your head is going to sound like, oh, more stuff that I have to do. Or it's going to sound like, I don't know if I like it, but man, 
I'm, I get to do that. I, I get to be a better father. And the difference between that is, do you rent faith? Do you own faith? Are you playing church? Are you the church? That's the difference. The difference between a choice and a chore is simply ownership. If we see unity as disposable, then we're going to see the things necessary to guard it as obligations. If we see it as vital, we'll see the things that are necessary to guard it as opportunities. Exactly. It's baby talk for you're the best preacher ever. Point two. Point two. Balance begins with B. See what I did there? (laughs) The letter B, the word B. I know, I'm brilliant. Which also starts with B. Balance begins with B. Once we take ownership of the unity that Jesus is giving us, we got to figure out how to live in that unity, right? So you buy a house. If you've ever bought a house, you pack up all your boxes, you move them into the new house, and they sit there. And you start to unpack them, and you have to figure out, okay, like, man, it's weird. Like, in our other house, I had the perfect shelf for that doohickey thing. When we were looking at this new house, I could have sworn I saw the perfect shelf for that doohickey thing, but there's not a perfect shelf that says doohickey thing anywhere in here. Where are we going to put it? Right? That's kind of how it works. So we as a church have been given a great gift, bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and it's called unity. He has torn down a dividing wall. We've talked about that. He has made it so that as Gentiles, which is a really churchy word, but that just means all of us unless you're actually a Jew, it means that all of us were on the outside looking in at a party that we could see but we could not attend. And Jesus came and said, that's stupid. Boom! Get in the party. And we walked in. And now here we are. In our new house, streamers, balloons, cake, the whole deal. Big old giant party. Loving it. At some point, though, we start to go, wait a second, that was my spot. It's crowded in here. I don't like it. I thought I had a shelf for my dookie thing. And we have to figure out how do we live in this thing called unity in the church. And that's what Paul's going to start helping us understand. It's a little tricky. It can be like walking on a tightrope. I wanted to ask if anybody here has ever walked on a tightrope. Does a slack line count? Okay. Richard's got a slack line. He's in the back. And she go out and do that with him because he can do it really well. He put it up one time for me to try it. And he's, I'm, I'm like... You know, the rope's like, cyclone's like this. And then he's trying to be encouraging. He goes, you know, if it's really moving a lot, you have a really weak core. Awesome. So I'm going to fall down. I'm going to get hurt. And you're mocking me. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Jerk. This stuff, listen, this stuff we're going to talk about, it requires some balance. And if you were going to do a tightrope, you would get up on top of that rope. And what would you have in your hands? Hopefully poles, really long poles. And I tried to find out what they're called, the technical term, and you know what what it's called? Uh, Well, no, (laughs) come on. It's not called a pole. It's called a balance pole. (laughs) You got to go with a technical term, right? So the whole reason you have that is because it just kind of, it it shifts and, and weighs down. It does something to the center of gravity, that whole point, so you can balance better. So see, like, 
people that go out and show off and um, walk on tight ropes like across the Grand Canyon or whatever between flying airplanes, they don't do that without a pole because they're not stupid. That pole is the whole deal. Now, I'm not good enough. If you gave me a pole right now and we set up a slack line from here to there, I'm still falling probably because I'm not a good tightrope person at all. But at least the pole makes it somewhat doable and possible. And so here's what we're going to find. Paul gives us three poles in this passage of Scripture. He's like, look, I'm calling you to a life of balance, to a life of unity. You are the church And now we're going to talk about how to be the church. And the only way for you to be the church is to walk this thing in balance. And so I'm going to give you some polls. As a matter of fact, the phrase in this, it says, live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. The phrase worthy, the Greek word is axios. It literally means equal weight. You can't live a life worthy equal weight unless you're balanced. And so he says, I'm going to give you some poles. Here's three poles, three ways that balance begins. We've got to be three things. The first thing, we need to be humble, verse 2. He says, be completely. Let's just, can we just be honest? Can we just skip over the word completely? That just knocks us out right there, doesn't it? I'm somewhat humble. I'm usually humble, except when I'm right, which is mostly. Be completely humble. I mean, we could just stop right there. I mean, I could start singing the altar call, and you would respond just to get me to stop singing, I'm sure. But still, because none of us are, well, I'm not completely humble. But he says, be completely humble. Here's what that means. We've got to figure out, what does humility mean, okay? Let's make sure we have a proper understanding of humility. It's not the same as a poor self-image. And most of us are afraid to be humble because in our head what we hear is, I just can't like myself. And in those of us that have a bad self-image, yeah, I'm humble. I'm the worst person ever created. And that's not humility. That's like you need to see a therapist. That's not humility, okay? The wrong kind of humility, listen to this, comes from seeing ourselves in relation to others. That's the wrong kind of humility. When we see ourselves in relation to others, that's the wrong kind. The right kind of humility is when we see ourselves in relation to God. See, humility literally means this, aware of one's own littleness. That's easy for me. You know why? Because my name is Paul. Do you know what what Paul means? Little. (laughs) You're like, I knew there was something about you. So the guy that's writing this, his name actually means little. Humility means to be aware of one's own littleness. And it does not mean, I mean, there's some of you, I'm just looking at some of you men. Some of you men scare me, you are, intimidate me, because you're like man's man, right? Like if we met in a dark alley, you could kill me. You wouldn't because we're like one in the body, right? You're like, hey, dude, what's up? But you could kill me. Some of you are big. You know, like, like, can you imagine standing next to Shaquille O'Neal? Hey, how are you doing? Dude, how do you want me to be doing? Just tell me, you know, it's big. People are big, like you're talking to his belly, right? When you're around people like that, it's easy to be aware of your littleness. But this is not what Paul's calling you to. 
He's not calling you to surround yourself with small or big people so you can relate yourself to where they are and you are. He's saying in view of God. What have we talked about to this point? A God who so loved you, so wanted you, that he would pay the ultimate price to tear down a wall of hostility, to bring different people together as one. That God, a God who could pull that off. And let's be honest. Look at the person next to you. Just take a quick peek. Just a quick peek is all you can bear. Just take a quick peek and look back. Unless you're dating, the people that you just looked at, you're like, I don't even know what I'm doing with them. We are so different. She balances the checkbook. I spend the money. We are so different. I'm nice. She's, we're so different. A God big enough to take different people and put them in the same place. And not just put them in the same place, but give them the same heart and make them one. A God like that, is he small or is he big? He's big. And when we see the bigness of God, we are aware of our own littleness. And that is the humility that Paul wants us to live with. And if we're always looking at a big God, you could be three times bigger than me. But if I'm looking at God, you're still small. We're all small because none of us are God. Paul says, be humble. Uh, let me just, you can jot these down if you want to. Here's, here's some things that we gain from having true humility from Scripture. We won't read them. I'm going to let you look them up later. James 4, 6 says that God gives grace to the humble. Man, I could use some grace, couldn't you? I need grace. He gives grace to the humble. Proud people don't get grace. Proud people get grief. Humble people get grace from God. Luke 14, 11, 1 Peter 5, 6, he exalts the humble. Which says this, I mean, let's just break that down. If he's exalting the humble, then what does that mean? It means that he sees the humble. How cool is that? Like, we're little. God doesn't really need us, and he sees us. He doesn't just see us, but he exalts the humble. Love that. And then, last, Proverbs 22, 4. For all of you um, who are noticing this, the end of the month, and you're kind of like, oh, money's running out, this is the one for you. When we walk in humility, Proverbs 22, 4 says that he gives us riches, honor, and life. Riches, honor, and life. And why is that? I mean, literally, we should do infomercials, right? One o'clock in the morning, you'll see me on TV doing an infomercial. Hey, the key to getting riches in life is to be humble. Give me all your money. No, no, no. Why is it that God gives riches and honor and life to humble people? Because they realize they're little. I can't take care of myself. I need God. And what does God do when people hunger and thirst? What does he, he fills those places. He provides exactly what we need. All the reason to be humble. Here's number two. We need to be humble. We need to be gentle. We need to be in prayer for that emergency we need to be gentle this is not the same as being a doormat um i'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand but let me just talk to the guys for a second here um guys when you hear somebody say be gentle there's something in us that's manly there it is in there somewhere we're trying to call it out of you there's something in men that kind of goes oh, gentle i don't know man i'm i don't want to be anybody's doormat it was walking over me 
Not only am I a man, but I'm an American man. Ha! Paps! Whatever. This is not about that at all, okay? Let me give you a good example. This is really about meekness. Here's a great definition of meekness. It's power under control. Meekness is power under control. The only way you can live with power under control, men especially, is to know who you are. You ever watch, um, of course, I was a youth pastor for 20 years, so it's fun to watch teenagers, especially teenage guys who don't really know who they are and how they interact with each other. Everything becomes a gunfight, right? Whoever has the bigger gun wins because they don't know how to talk. They don't, they don't have any self-confidence. So the way they get their confidence is, I got a bigger gun, and I can turn it sideways. But all that comes from not knowing who you are. When you know who you are, have you ever read in the scriptures where Jesus is accused of things and it says that Jesus remained silent? It takes a lot of gentleness, a lot of meekness, a lot of knowing who you are to not lift up your voice and defend yourself. I'm not saying you get walked over. I'm just saying sometimes we know who we are and so we can choose our battles a little bit better. And Paul says this, look, be gentle. Know who you are. You don't have to prove yourself. You can yield to others and not lose your identity. And that's for the women, right? Lots of times you'll hear, you'll hear spouses, they'll say this, we've been married and I've just I've given myself to my husband and now here we are 30 years later and I've lost myself. I don't even know who I am anymore. Meekness allows us to give ourselves, to yield to others and not lose our identity. Do you see now why those first three chapters are so critical? Like we've got to know who we are so that we can do these things that allow us to maintain and guard unity. People jockeying for position. They don't know who they are. Uh, Psalm 1835. We're going to turn to that. I want you to see this. It's a great, great picture of meekness. Psalm 1835. We're just about done. Can you believe it? Everybody say, woo Y'all want me to keep preaching. That's fantastic. I'll just keep preaching to you guys. Psalm 18:35. Now, this, this is a psalmist about God. The psalmist has just written in verse 31 that God is a rock. You know, when you call somebody a rock, you know, that's usually a good thing. Like in the gym, dude, you're a rock. You don't say like, you're like a sponge. One time I, I flexed my muscles for, for some a kid. I was like, what do you think about that? And they're like, kind of mushy. They're like a marshmallow. Wow. <laughs> Shut up, kid. <laughs> Don't you know who I am? <laughs> Sorry, here we go. Psalm 1835. So he just called him a rock. He just said, hey, the Lord's a rock. So we're talking about a big God, right? And look at what it says about God. This is about God in Psalm 1835. You give me your shield of victory. Meekness allows us to give of ourselves. You give me your shield of victory. Your right hand sustains me. Do you get the picture here of God? He's just like helping us. And here's what it says. I love this line. You stoop down to make me great. That's meekness. Now, I don't know about you. I want to hang out with people like that. I want to hang out with people who 
who are great. They know who they are. They, they've a, they've, they're better than I am, and they don't tell me how good they are and how bad I am, but they stoop down. They can give of themselves because they know who they are, and they make me better. Can you just picture? Well, I don't have to try hard to picture because I look at it every single week. That's what I see God building at the gathering. I see him filling this place with people who are not on a power-hungry trip. We're just like, look, we know who we are in Jesus. We just want to help you be better. We want to stoop down. We want to help you up. We want to help you be great. That's the picture of meekness. That phrase, stoop down, is the Hebrew word for meekness. Paul says, be humble. Be gentle. Have these balance poles. Man, make sure you're walking with these things. Walk in humility. Walk in gentleness. These will help you walk out unity. And the last thing he tells us to do, say this one. It's the last one. It's the hardest one. He asks us to be patient. Those of you that are here right now and you've looked at your watch ten times in the last ten minutes, this one's for you. There'll be more food at the restaurant. Be patient. Patience is a tough one because there's really only one way to develop patience, right? The only way to develop patience is slow cars, long lines, and people. It's the only way. You want to develop patience? Go to Carowinds. No, no, no. You want to go? You want to develop patience? Go to Carowinds on a Christian music day. Be a youth pastor. Load up your kids and take them to Carowinds. Because in a whole day span, I used to go and literally in an entire day span, I'd ride four rides. Because you're in line for two hours for 30 seconds of excitement. And the teenagers are like, this is the best day ever. And you're like, are you kidding me? Do you have a brain? Be patient. It's the only way to develop patience. Um, Romans 12, 2. Let me just, you don't have to turn it if you want to, but let me just read you a couple verses in Romans. Romans 12, 2 tells us to remain patient in affliction. That's why we hate for God to develop patience in us. Because you just, nobody develops patience waiting on good stuff, right? It's in affliction. It's in the hard times. That's when we develop patience. It literally is, last night, we, Wendy and I got to go on a date. Woo, it was fantastic. And we had to pick Parker Will up somewhere at 10 o'clock. And when we left the movie theater at Concord Mills at 930, huh, apparently people in Concord stay up really late at the mall in their cars. And so we're just like trying, flying down, trying backwards, because we want to get there on time. We were not patient last night, and especially not when we got behind that one car. Because anytime you have to be somewhere, you're going to get behind that one car. That one car rotates worldwide, <laughs> right? It's their job. It's a great job. They get paid for it. They're just like driving and going, I'm taking those people off. It's fantastic. And I'm earning commission, baby, right? That's their job. We got behind that one car, and it was like, I can't get around this car. You know, they're not in a hurry. Like the whole world's in a hurry. They're not in a hurry. And it just drove us crazy. That's, that's kind of in affliction. Be patient in affliction. That's affliction for, for Americans, right? Uh, worldwide, there's different afflictions, like, you know, getting killed. But for Americans, our affliction is usually slow cars, Walmart, right? Lawyers. Not necessarily, but sometimes. Paul says, be patient in affliction. So here's the good news for us. 
if you're being afflicted right now in any form, in any area, and you're a follower of Jesus, guess what he's doing? He's developing patience. He's developing the pole, one of the balance poles that's going to help you walk out unity. <laughs> I have found this to be true, and I won't ask you to raise your hands because it will make all of us at the gathering feel bad. But sometimes the best place to develop patience is church. Church people are so good at afflicting each other. We, we are. We're just really good at it. We don't even try. It just comes naturally. Like you're just in a room together, and somebody's going to get their feelings hurt. Um, you know, John um, Bevere does a whole thing on the bait of Satan, and he bases it off of one verse in Luke that says it's impossible for offense not to come. It's basically it's impossible to live and at some point not get ticked off at somebody. It's going to happen. It happens a lot. Why does it happen in church so much? Because we're hypocrites? No, because we're together. That's it. Simple as that. Same reason it happens at your Thanksgiving family reunion. Because you're in the same house and the walls close in. You're like, oh, i got to get out of here. People together. It just happens. It just happens. But he doesn't say, uh, stop that. He just says, learn to be patient in affliction. Best reason you're at the gathering. You get to learn to be patient in affliction. Just rubbing shoulders with people. Bumping into people. Helps you develop patience. And then Romans chapter 8, verse 25. Paul says this, But if we hope for what we do not have yet, we wait for it patiently. Why is that so important? It's important because over the next couple of weeks, we look at the last part of this letter, we're going to see these, you know, how dads should treat their kids and how kids should respect their parents and how husbands should be perfect and wives should also be perfect. And just, you know, we're going to read a lot of stuff. And all of us are going to do this. There's no way. There's just no way on God's green earth I can do that. It's going to take so long for me to develop that. Well, guess what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8? Why do we have to have patience? Because we're waiting for what we don't have. Christmas morning takes forever to get here. But when they're holding the gift and they have opened it, they do not need to be patient any longer. Right? Because they have it. But up until that point, you're like, hold on, it's not, not yet. I mean, to the point, we actually, like, we have paper that says do not open till Christmas Day. Patient while we're waiting to get what we don't have. Let me just tell you something. The stuff we're going to read about in Ephesians 4 through 6, a lot of stuff that we don't have yet. We're supposed to have it. We're getting it. God's working in us. He's faithful to do that because that's the kind of God he is. He's big. We're small, but we don't have it yet. And so he says, hey, look, while you're trying to walk this out, and here's how it works in church, I preach a message, and then we all go out and mess up. And God, God's right, right here. He says through Paul, hey, look, kind of walk this balance thing, right? Grab that pole, dude. It's okay. Humble, gentle, patient. Humble, gentle, patient. Just walk that thing, man. Humble, gentle, patient. Give each other time to work it out. These are non-negotiables if we're going to live a life of unity. And here, here's how Paul closes this out in Ephesians chapter 4. Let's just read verses 3 through 6. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope, when you were called one Lord, one fa I wonder where we got the title one. Huh, maybe it was here. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. 
feels like um, there's only one option, doesn't it? You've probably heard the story of Hernando Cortez. He was a Spanish conqueror. He, he landed in Mexico, and he immediately told his men to burn the ships. That's like moving to Albemarle and making sure the U-Haul truck can never come back. Well, we're here now. It's live or die. Something about limiting the option can pull out the best in people. And, and when Paul's writing this, I, I could just feel it's almost like, like, look, there's one thing. There's one body. There's not a smorgasbord of places that you can go. Now, I get it. This is the South, and we can, like, you'll hate. If you hate what I'm doing right now, you're not going to be back next week. You're going to find another church. I get it. And we can do the church thing all day long, but guess what? There's one God. Psalm 139 says you can't run from him. He will find you. He will find you on the back row of a Baptist church as quick as he'll find you on the front row of a Pentecostal church. He'll find you because there's one God, and he wants you. And he limits the option. And that should call something out of us. Like, this is it. This is We got married, and this is old school, okay? I'm not trying to convince you you should do it this way. It's just old school. We got married, and I said, Wendy, I'm not going to divorce you. (gasps) What? It's crazy. It's not an option. You'll have to kill me first. That's been talked about. But we did not enter into this covenant lifetime relationship with that as an option. I am not saying that everybody that gets divorced had that as an option. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying in our, in our minds, we burned the ships. And so what that means is more for Wendy than for me because I'm so glad to be married to you. Someday she wakes up and she looks over and she goes, oh, God. He's still here? God, I didn't sleep at all last night. He snores like crazy. And he will not wear the stupid thing on his nose. And I don't want to be one of those wives that sleeps in another room, but I'm thinking about it. God, can I just find a better guy? No. That shit's been burned, baby. <laughs> that shit's been burned. <laughs> So you are stuck with me. <laughs> like that Lionel Richie song, like, stuck like, whatever it is, it's like, uh, stuck on you, right? Stuck on you. That's it. Like, there's no way getting out. She's stuck. Now the positive side of that. It's what makes us sit down and say things like this. How can we make this the best marriage ever? Because this is it. And again, I'm not trying to make people feel bad they're divorced. I get it. But I can only tell you my where I'm at. How can we make this the best? It's why I walked on the beach with her and said, we have a good marriage, but I want it to be great. Because it's the one marriage I've got. I don't live in Utah. I have one marriage. This is it. And I want it to be the stuff of legend. Paul says you got one faith, one body, one spirit, one Savior. Gathering, you got one church. Make it the best. Go all in on that. Make it the best. I read a a book one time by Howard Schultz. 
He was the CEO of Starbucks. It's a great book. It's called Pour Your Heart Into It. And he said, he said this. As the owner of Starbucks, he would walk into stores just to check on them, see how they're doing. And he said, I never, I never took a cup of coffee from my own business for free. He said, I would walk in, they would know who I was, and I would get coffee, and they'd be like, oh, yeah, that's, just, that's on the house. They're like, nope. So I said, why in the world are you paying for your coffee? He says, because it's my business, and I don't want to do anything that would hurt the bottom line of my business. I could take the coffee for free, but I choose to pay because I want my business to be the best coffee business in the world. The difference between a choice and a chore is ownership. And there will be times in this body of Christ that we could take, and we could take it because it's ours, but we will choose to give back because we are all in on one thing. This is the body. And I want it to be the best that it can be. Paul commanded the Ephesians. He said, look, make every effort to keep, to own the unity. When we own it, what felt like a chore suddenly becomes a choice. We own it, and what were obligations now become opportunities. Ownership changes everything. The difference between a choice and a chore is ownership.